You're listening to Embolden Adventures. I'm Sarah, and welcome to the podcast. Hello, listeners and adventurers. Welcome to another episode of the Embolden Adventures podcast show. Embolden Adventures, be emboldened. Embolden Adventures is meant to inspire you to travel, to get out there, to explore, to learn. Let Embolden Adventures encourage you to take those steps to experience the world. Follow along on the adventure. Visit the website at emboldenadventures.com. Sign up for email updates on new content and ideas. Follow Embolden Adventures on Facebook and social media. And subscribe to the Embolden Adventures podcast show on the podcast page of the Embolden Adventures website. Please rate the podcast and tell us what you think. Know that I must do what's right. Sure as Kilimanjaro rises like Olympus above the Serengeti. Kim Payne is on this Embolden Adventures podcast talking about all things Kilimanjaro and her amazing experiences traveling the world and her decorative military career, as well as working some time in the Pentagon. Very, very interesting stuff, Kim. Good to have you on the podcast. How are you? I am doing well. I'm so excited to talk about this stuff. I think that you are complete inspiration oh thank you I do I'm like so excited for you thank you so wonderful stuff it's really good to see you uh well over Skype anyway um I haven't seen you in person in forever I was trying to think of that today when I was on my walk home from the train station and I think it was our high school reunion it had to have been 10 years where we went to what's that restaurant in Oxford oh Brookside You and I share very similar stories. Uh, You know, I want to get into uh, introducing you and talk about your experience as a U.S. Marine, which, again, when I found this out after around college, I was I I had no idea you joined the Marines. Yeah, it is a pretty it was pretty cool. And I would never trade those eight years for anything. Did you know in high school you were going to join the Marines? Because that's something we never talked about at the lockers, that's for sure. No, um, I was looking at different career paths. I think we were seniors in high school, and I was like, there's no way I'm going to get where I want to go if I go into college first. It's just not going to happen. So I had to look at other alternatives. What did you have in mind as kind of that end result? I wanted to be in the intelligence field somewhere in the government. It's very, very hard to get there from a college route. So that's, I backtracked and I was like, all right, well, you're going to need some military service and you might as well go big or go home. So I did it. And I can say that I achieved every career goal that I wanted and then some and got into a career field that I never, there's no way if you told me in high school, like you're going to become a fingerprint and iris expert, 
I'd be like, no, no, I don't even know what any of that means. So we graduated high school and off we go in our separate ways. And here you are going to boot camp. Like how did that Marine boot camp as a chick? I didn't find boot camp to be difficult in any way. Really? Um, mentally, you just have to be prepared knowing that they're going to knock you down. They're going to make you feel worthless. They're going to make you into nothing and then build you up to a certain character. And I really think that that helped shape the whole future for me. I don't think I would be the person I am today or have had the experiences if I didn't go through boot camp. And I think it's definitely helped the whole Marine career in my professional life to prepare me for working in a male-dominated field where they're going to put you down, you're going to be yelled at, you're going to be screamed at for no apparent reason, especially working in the Pentagon. It's a cutthroat environment, as it should be. There's always been lives on the line. So I've always been operationally focused. So I don't think I would have the success I've had professionally and in my personal life if I hadn't gone through boot camp and the whole eight years in the Marine Corps. And then you got deployed. Um, well, I went to Okinawa first for about six months. Um, that was about two years after I moved to California. Then I came back, and then I went on what we would call Marine Expeditionary Unit, and that's you go out on ship for six months. That's I went off to the coast of Somalia. I got to visit Seychelles, Australia, Thailand, all all along the way. So you have some great port calls. And then I came back, and three weeks later, I was back on a boat to Kuwait for the start of the Iraqi War in two thousand three. So you did a tour, basically, a, a tour around the, I guess, the Middle East and some parts of Asia on a boat, but then you got deployed uh, during the war, and you've done, what, two tours, three tours of duty as a deployed Marine? Two to Iraq, and then the one, the boat tour counted as a combat tour because of our location and our mission. But the two tours to Iraq, the first one, obviously, was it was the unknown. We hadn't... In our lifetime, we hadn't experienced anything like that, and we hadn't, when 9-11 happened, that was our first exposure as a population and a culture in our lifetime to these atrocities that happened. So going into Iraq, it was a, it was new for me. I mean, obviously I hadn't done anything like that ever, and it was the fear of the unknown. I mean, you're going into battle. Wow. Oh my goodness. So was this one of the first times you left the country? Yes. So I went to like Mexico and the Bahamas when I was in high school, with, like on spring break with my parents. And yeah, while I was in Okinawa, I got to visit South Korea, Hong Kong, and Japan, and mainland Japan, and then came back. And that's really when the travel bug started. I was like, oh my gosh, look at these other countries. This is incredible. Because I feel like in the Valley, they don't, my opinion anyways, they don't do a very good job of showcasing what else is out there. You become very centered in a bubble. And even in high school, I felt like that we were, I mean, you had those trips that went to, I think there was a class trip that went to the UK. That was my class trip. Yeah, I went um, right yeah. after graduation. So you were going, now I think about it, you were off to boot camp and I was off to uh, London. Sure. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the four country tour. Now it makes sense where we're parallel here. And, you know, yeah. the travel bug hit me at that point too. 
Or we share a similar tale, you know, obviously you going to the Marines and going on tours of duty can't compare to my career on Wall Street, but I think there are some... Well, yes and no. I mean, the similarities are the fact that you're doing a demanding job in a male-dominated environment. And, you know, I think travel is our release. It's a way to help us enjoy life. (laughs) It is. I've actually kind of become... I'm probably one of the least competitive people you'll ever meet. And I think it's because the Marine Corps got all of my aggression for eight years. Where now I'm just like so laid back. I'm like, okay, you want to win the race, you should win the race. But I've like become self-competitive with uh, with travel. So I've been to around 50 countries. 50? Yeah. Wow, I've only been to 30. Now here we are competing. I've only been to 36. <laughs> oh, that's so good. Yeah, it's good, but <laughs> we'll get to the 100 club, you and I. We'll celebrate on top of another mountain. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the idea of seeing the world, I mean, for me, it was always just looking at maps. I just had this attraction to maps. I always had to look at them. I had to look at this encyclopedia of flags, and I always used to collect shells, and I always used to try to learn about Egypt and try to learn about sharks. And other than that, I had no idea what that all meant. Yeah, I'm with you. I just, I still am obsessed with maps, and I'm constantly on my Google Maps app, and I'm like, where can I go, and how many miles is it going to take me to get there? And that's, it's just a hobby, and I just love to learn about where other countries are and what their culture is. And I always try to eat their local foods as weird as they've become sometimes. (laughs) There's so much to talk about. We have so much to cover. I mean, I still want to get back to your Marine story and obviously weird food. You know, I've seen starfish on, uh, on sticks in China, you know, like, and people eat starfish, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's weird. And I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot because, what were some of the weirdest things you've eaten while you've been around the world? Um, I'm not proud of it, but I have tried dog. But what, where, and what did it taste like? And did you know before you ate it? It was in South Korea. I knew what I was getting into because, but I was like, all right, you're here. This is the only opportunity. You have to try it. And it was pretty awful. Like, I was crying the whole time. That's one of the experiences of travel, right? When you go around the world, there's new things to see, learn, do, cultures. I mean, we could talk for hours about this, and I think we definitely need a second podcast (laughs) to talk about your travel experiencing. Your listeners are going to be like, oh, he's back to on again. No, 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 there's so... Well, we haven't even gotten started, in my opinion. (laughs) You're in Germany now. You got married, you moved to Germany, right, from D.C. (laughs) How's that going so far? It's amazing. So Germans have a lot of holidays over here. They really value vacation time much more than Americans. They have so many holidays. So my husband's like giving me his holiday calendar and I get my calendar from school where I'm taking German classes. I'm like, all right, Easter. And he's like, oh, we should go to Spain. I was like, nope. I was like, I've already been to Spain. I was like, I need another country. So we're going to Portugal. And when we were on our wedding trip, I was like, we have to make it over to San Marino. He's like, who, why? I was like, because that's a little, like, it's like country in a country. Because I need a passport stamp and a magnet. That's how I think. Yeah. And I was like, and it counts. I have my list of countries that I need to visit while I'm here. Luckily, my husband hasn't been to any country. Why do you think travel's important to you? And why do you think travel's important in general? It's important to me because it makes me feel alive. And it 
keeps my imagination going, I guess. I always, I just want to keep exploring, and I don't, I have this whole philosophy where everybody, you know, has this bucket list, and I don't want to have a bucket list that's waiting until, like, the last moment, and I keep striving for something, so when I consider my bucket list my to-do list, and anytime something is added to it, I'm like, oh, well, that's, it's on my bucket list, which means it has to happen, and if there's something that I want to do, I make sure it happens. If you have it in you to really want to see, let's say, the pyramids or to go, I don't know, to the Colosseum in Rome or, you know, see London, see anywhere beyond your kind of immediate home, you know, there's a will, there's a way. It can be done, right? If you yeah, look into absolutely. something. There's just so many ways to travel and I don't think anything should hold you back. That's amazing. And you've been all over the world. You've been to Asia. You've been to the Middle East. You've been to Africa. You've been everywhere, really. The Americas. Yeah. Tell us about some of the the highlights of, of your travel experience? Well, you have your, obviously, your tropical vacations and your tropical locations that you just love. Um, the Seychelles was a definite highlight for me because not many Americans experience the Seychelles. It's so difficult to get to and it's ridiculously expensive, but I was fortunate enough that that was one of our port of calls when I was on one of my 11th Marine Expeditionary Unit. We got to stop in Seychelles for about seven days. Good so place it, to get stopped. Yeah, I had no complaints here. So I was extremely fortunate to visit there. And so that's like when you picture your tropical vacation in your mind, you know, you're on the beach, this perfect white sand and crystal blue water, and it looks like you're in a fish tank that's been impeccably maintained. That's what you think of. But my probably some of my favorite destinations and the best obviously Jordan, and I think we've talked about that, where I, it was a last-minute decision to go there. I just needed a vacation. I typed in the wrong airport code and started exploring Oman, and I had a girlfriend from my yoga class who is like me and loves to travel and is always up for anything last minute, anywhere, any place. So she joined me. That was a really humbling experience. Everybody was always like, you're going to the Middle East by yourself? Because it was about a good week before I knew that I was going with someone. My parents were freaked out. My boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, was like, are you kidding me? He's like, you cannot go to Jordan by yourself. I don't look at it as a dangerous place because, I mean, you've seen what happens with 9-11. New York was a dangerous place. Living in D.C., anything could happen. So I don't think of those locations as out of the ordinary and dangerous. I've always wanted to swim in the Salt Lake or the um, the Dead Sea. Dead Sea. When I was in the fourth grade, we had geography class, and I remember looking at this person holding a newspaper and floating in the Dead Sea. I'm like, oh my god, I want to do that one day. So that has always been in the back of my mind. You and I did connect uh, a few times about different things, mm -hmm. different travel ideas, and it's same, just, just like you. You know, I went to Jordan last year for a wedding, and same kind of pushback. What are you nuts? It's it's dangerous. It's in the Middle East. It's next to Iraq. It's next to you know Syria. Uh, you know, you have to be very careful. Uh, don't go. You know, I've been forbidden to go. They are more Western than any other Middle yeah. Eastern country. Incredibly wonderful. And you have Petra, right? The the amazing Petra from the Indiana Jones movie. The only thing I wanted to do when we went to 
I was like, we need to ride a camel in Petra. Did you ride the camel just for the iconic shot in front of the treasury? Or did you go through the whole, because the area is the size of Manhattan. I don't know if people realize right. that, but it's, yeah. it's very vast in this huge valley of like rocks and canyonways. Uh, you know, th they say it was um, developed during the time of Jesus. So the, the three wise men actually are right. known to maybe have walked through Petra on camels because it's the uh what was it the frankincense trade route the spice route and that's why yeah. it was so such a rich place back then so we rode our camels for about 45 minutes wow place to another and let me tell you there's a reason why camels are not a mode of transportation anymore. <laughs> they're stubborn <laughs> You plan your trips from a cost-effective standpoint, right? And you, yes. you said you put in the wrong airport code and you got Amman, Jordan, the capital, instead of some other airport you were looking for. But yet yes. it still fit your parameters of, I guess, distance and cost. And, you know, what you were telling me earlier is how you were very courageous in even just renting a car and going, which is not something oh. we did. So why don't you explain more about that kind of emboldened, you know, adventure? <laughs> Well, I like to, I pick a weekend and then I don't really care where I go because I have so many destinations that I want to see in the world that I don't really prioritize them. So then I just pick a cost. I'm like, all right, well, where can I go for this amount of money? And I saw my flight and I was like, all right, that's it. And then I backwards plan. I'm like, all right, now where should I go? Where should I stay? Because I've done so many overseas jobs where I've had to fly to Bahrain and fly to Turkey and all these other locations that you're forced to rent a car because you have to get from meeting to meeting. So it's like second nature. It's funny because I lived in D.C. and I had a car in the Beltway, if you're familiar with D.C., like surrounds the whole capital. And I would not leave the Beltway. Like, I, that was my safety bubble. I don't drive outside the Beltway. But you put me in a car in, like, Jordan or Bahrain or Kuwait, and I'm like, all right, good to go. Let's go driving. The windshield of the world could be the horizon of Kilimanjaro. One day did you wake up and say, I'm going to climb the tallest freestanding mountain in the world at 19,000 feet in elevation? What, what made you say, I'm doing Kilimanjaro? I was reading about stuff that's disappearing and stuff that you need to see before it goes away. And the glaciers on that mountain are disappearing. And they say there's like less than 10 years left before the glacier is gone. Like I'm the, such a pushover when it comes to adventure. Like if it's super dangerous and it's going to give me the adrenaline rush, like I'll be hesitant at first, but then just ask me again. I'm like, okay. I was thinking about this because I'm going to be climbing Kilimanjaro obviously soon. And it's 19,000 feet, and that's higher than where we jump out of a plane. Uh-huh. It's going to be incredible, and it's so cool because when you're walking or hiking up, there are some parts of the mountain where you're going to see the town where you stayed in preparing for the climb. You can see it down below. Once you hit closer to the top of the mountain, you know, the highest of altitudes, and you're getting altitude sickness, low, low oxygen, you know, it's really more of a mental game at this point. You really have to dig deep in, like, into your inner self and be like, I can do this. I mean, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And you just keep thinking about the view, honestly. You know you're going to see the sunrise over the top of those mountains. And when you think of Kilimanjaro, you think, oh, it's the largest freestanding mountain 
I don't know if it's Africa or the world, when you see pictures of it, it just looks like a big cone shape. And what you don't see until you're actually on there are the dips and the valleys. And once you're climbing at the top, you see the sun rise up over the glacier. So last night I was walking home. It was pretty late. It was maybe about 12 o'clock. It's dark. It's cold. I'm tired. It feels desolate, right? I probably should have took a cab, but in my mind, I'm like, no, you have to get mentally tough for hiking. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I'm like shivering. <laughs> mentally tough. I mean, and I'm looking around and I wanted to talk to you about this because there's that moment when you start leaving your campsite. Where are you? Maybe at 16,000 foot elevation, right? You're yeah. leaving at midnight and you're walking a total of 20 hours from start to finish, getting up to the summit and getting back yeah. down. You're literally isolated. There's no noise. You're in the middle of nowhere. You're going at a snail's pace. How am I going to get through this? I can't even walk home right now. <laughs> yeah, it's such a surreal experience. You're right. It's going to be quiet. So you'll start your ascent around midnight, and then you have a good six hours, and it's really just four steps, stop, take a breath. Another 10 steps, stop, take a couple breaths. You're so cold. You're so tired. You're just freezing, and you take the, the deepest breath that you can, and you're only getting like half of what your oxygen is. It's a surreal feeling. You don't have oxygen deprivation. I mean, you do on some level, but you know you're breathing. So that's where the mental part comes in. It's like, you're not going to die. You're going to survive this. So are you going to be taking Diamox? Oh, see, I don't know because I'm getting mixed reviews. You're naturally acclimating in a slow, relative way, and I heard Diamox is going to actually make you sick. I, we, I wouldn't climb without it. Is that right? Okay, interesting. Yeah. I want to take coca leaves with me. You know how the Inca, yeah. you know, in Machu Picchu, chew coca, but, you know, obviously it's the <laughs> cocaine is a derivative of it, so I don't know if I can find I, it and bring it. I'm going to get stopped at the I, airport with I, coca leaves. <laughs> I highly, highly recommend Diamox. Okay. Nobody in our group got sick. Um, I never had a single issue with altitude at all. Excellent. You have to drink a, a lot of water. That's another thing that you really need to be water concerned about. You really just need to eat. Mm -hmm. And you're going to want to quit. I'm not going to lie. I believe it's also that whole um, the group mentality. Like everyone else is doing it. You don't want to be the one to quit. You, you feed off of everyone else's determination really everyone's determined or, or perceived to be determined because I'm sure everyone feels the same way you're feeling <laughs> there's like this fine line of going too slow and going too fast at one point I I broke down in tears because we had a group of four there was a young couple and then Allison and I and obviously all of our porters and everything but I told Allison I was like I don't want to go on anymore because you're only going at the pace of your slowest tiger and this girl was a severe asthmatic, and she was, like, having a lot of trouble. And I just wanted to keep moving. I wasn't having any trouble. I wasn't having any trouble breathing. My heart rate was fine. We'd stop for 10 minutes for her to catch her breath. And I was getting so angry because I was getting so cold because I wasn't moving. And I told Allison, I was like, I I'm going to quit. But then right when you want to give up and be like, this is not worth it, the majority of the planet is not going to climb Kilimanjaro. I'm just going to join the rest of the planet and not be one of the exceptional few. You turn around, and that's where you see the sun rising up. It gives you this whole new, like, your second wind, and you're like, okay, I've got this. This is the best thing ever. 
and my girlfriend Allison and I were like, don't cry because our tears are going to freeze. Don't cry because that's extra energy that we don't have. <laughs> we're just holding hands and we were like, oh my God, this is the best thing. Who would have thought two city kids from Connecticut, never in our wildest dreams did we think that her and I would be climbing Kilimanjaro. And I'm pretty sure our parents thought the same thing because they were anxiously waiting by the phone to say like, oh god, they misstepped, they fell off the mountain, they gave up, they quit. Because our parents, who are best friends, and I've known Alice my whole life, they were like, there's no way you girls are going to make this. The two of you, two princesses, and we did it, and we hugged, and we cried, and I thought it was a good idea to attempt hula hooping. You thought it was a good idea to what? Attempt to hula hoop. Oh, hula hoop, right. That's one of your... girl brought a hula hoop up, and I was like, I have to do this. You only spend about 20 minutes up there, 30 minutes tops, and you come down and you're on this mental high. Like you can conquer anything. You can actually feel like the oxygen getting thicker. So after you come back down, you'll stop at the, the ice ledge and you'll have like a snack and you'll stop for a couple hours, regroup, reflect on that amazing achievement you just did. You'll pack up your stuff and then you'll head back down to the next camp and there's this part of the section it's called scree i don't know if you're familiar with scree in fuji it's the sand run and you just it took us what 12 hours to get to the top of mount fuji but then basically two hours to scream down on the sand run it's like running basically vertical right and you are just taking these large jump steps like you'll use your hiking poles and it's honestly like you're skiing because It's such loose gravel that you don't even really pick your feet up. You just dig your heels in and you just glide down. It's fun. We we were doing like um, tumbles. We kept putting our backpacks and watching the, like just naturally the backpack would keel over and just roll like tumbleweed down. We'd have to go catch it. It was so much fun. It was a great kind of reward for like all that hiking we did. (laughs) The sand run. Allison lost all of her toenails during that part because her feet kept hitting the front of her hiking boots. So that's something to keep in mind is make sure your hiking boots are a perfect fit. How, how does that all work? You know, how many pairs of clothes do you bring? You know, yeah. all this stuff. Like, how do you, what do you plan? How do you plan for something like so that? So where you stay is about an hour ride from the airport. And when you arrive in the airport, it's only climbers. On the mountain, you want to bring enough clothes Three pairs of level one thermal pants, three tops of thermal one tops, and they were pretty specific. Like we had to have a down jacket of 800 fill, and all of that goes in your bag and this waterproof North Face bag that we used. And then in your day pack, you would bring like an extra pair of socks, and you'll bring like a long sleeve shirt, depending on what climates you're going to be encountering that day. Snacks, your water, your camera. But your friend, unfortunately, lost her luggage, right? That must have been a debacle. Yes, it was. I went to the airport to pick her up. And I was like, oh my God. I was like, what is going on? And she's walking over completely bawling. And I was like, what's going on? She's like, my bag's not here. So they couldn't find her bag. And we're like, all right, well, we'll figure it out. We're the exact same size. You have your hiking boots on. You wore those on the plane, thank God. Oh, wow. Yeah, good good fortune there. Yeah. And I was like, we'll figure it out. So we go back to the hotel. We split a bottle of wine because at that point, that's all you really should do. 
And the guide came and he's like, well, what can we get? It's not like you're going to find an outfit or, or an REI or any store like that. We were going on a six-day safari following the climb. So I had a little bit of extra clothes. And I was like, all right, well, let's divvy it up. So we split my clothes in half, and that's what we went. And all we can do is laugh at this. We are on the other side of the world, literally, away from everything. All we have is each other and eight pairs of clean underwear. And it was super significant for me. It was my 30th birthday. I needed a break. My job is very, very mentally draining. And so this was all for me. It was the first time I feel like I was selfish in my life, especially since I left home at 18. Everything has always been for someone else. Like my troops, my fellow Marines, my country, everything. I felt like I was always doing something for another purpose. I mean, don't get me wrong. I enjoyed every second of it, but it was amazing. Everyone should do it. Mission accomplished, I suppose. (laughs) So let's, I mean, Kim, this was an incredible introduction as to uh, your experience in climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. Yes, you're right, the tallest freestanding mountain in all the world, which is uh, quite a feat. Who'd have thought, you know, we were maybe a few lockers in between, right? I don't know, probably less than 10 lockers in between us? Not even, right. So, you know, alphabetically. And if we were to go back in time and talk to our high school selves and say, you two girls from the valley, that is Seymour, (laughs) you know, Naugatuck Valley, you're going to go to Africa and climb Kilimanjaro. I would have been like, okay, what are you talking about? And number two, where is that on a map? I've never even heard of this mountain before. (laughs) Completely honest with you. I didn't really know where it was either when my, because this trip was not my idea. This was Allison's dream. And she was looking for a fellow ambitious world traveler to embark on this journey with her. And I had just gotten back from Iraq my second time when she, my parents threw me a huge party, a huge welcome home party, and she was there, and she's like, all right, she's like, now you're back, she's like, we need to climb Kilimanjaro. I was like, I'm not even sure where that is, but okay. I was like, that sounds good. Yeah, but in high school, there's no way I would have said, I'm going to climb a mountain, I'm going to visit all these amazing countries and have these experiences. I'm like, you're crazy. See, it's amazing. You could do anything, right, if you put your mind to it. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Well, I wish in hindsight we knew when we had lockers next to each other, we could have been talking about this a long time (laughs) earlier instead of playing catch up now. (laughs) I know. We're hiking with a few different people from around the world. We have a few from Australia, my brother and I from uh, New York. My friends from Australia are doing a round the world trip, so they'll be meeting us in the city. And we'll be flying over together. So this is, you and I are travelers. This, this is where we can share our, our fun travel tips. I have 100,000 points from Chase Reserve, the credit card. It's one of these higher-end uh, travel cards. And, you know, I get a lot of points just from using my credit card. It's an excellent travel program. So those points will get me a free flight to, yeah. to Africa. One thing I'm trying to really get to the bottom of is how do I bring my electronics up there to take, you know, quality photos and maybe do a podcast recording and then obviously how do I charge it and how does the battery not drain in the very cold temperatures? Give us uh, some tips on how you managed. Well, we brought a cell phone and we brought a solar charger to charge that. I had a DSLR and like a little point and shoot camera because I kept the the DSLR in my backpack or the little point and shoot I would just keep in my pocket of my pants. 
But our batteries, we just kept on our body, and then once they were dead, we'd throw them in our pack. I think I brought five or six batteries for my DSLR camera and only went through two. The lithium-ion rechargeable. I see. So you mentioned you didn't really train, and, and what I'm doing is, you know, I'm trying to walk everywhere. I'm actually doing mm-hmm. some squats, P90X, you know, I'm trying to yeah. do some running. You know, I did some hiking as well, but what do you recommend? You obviously did it. You know what you didn't do leading up to it, or maybe what you, you did do that helped. So help me understand, or what's the appropriate way to prepare your body for this? <laughs> like I said, I didn't do any training for it. I didn't do any particular training. I was very active. I was at the gym every day. I was teaching Pilates at the time as well. So I just made sure that I was physically fit. I would do my cardio every day. I was also coming off of a major back surgery. So I was trying to incorporate that and make sure that my back muscles and my core were extremely strong in order to support all of this work that I was about to do. You literally just doing a leisurely stroll, right? Yeah. Yes, it is physically demanding, but you're not summoning Everest. You're not using any technical climbs and gear and everything. It's really mental, and just be prepared to be tired. Your ass muscles are going to (laughs) hurt. It's a lot. Day two is all, like, bouldering. Mm -hmm. That's like Fuji, the the last part, the boulders and the switchbacks. You were just like, when is this going to end? But, you know, if you have your poles... That helps. It relieves some of the, I guess, muscle work that your legs are doing. It's not as grueling as you would think it is. Each day you're hiking only about seven or eight hours. Throughout the whole day, which isn't terrible. Throughout the whole day, and you finish early because you're you're sleeping in tents, so you're obviously going to wake up when the sun comes up. And you get up, and you have breakfast, you get ready for the day, and you start. Okay, so it's leisurely, because I was thinking, when I go scuba diving and I'm on these liveaboards, it's kind of regimented, especially if you want to get four, five, six dives a day, you know, you kind of have the schedule. You know, when we did the six, which is my record, six dives in a day, we were up at five in the morning, in the water by 5.30, and that's how I woke up. It's like, whoa, okay, <laughs> Mom, I'm, un- I'm underwater, I'm awake, you know? You're in nature, so you're breathing this fresh air, and it's just, your views are incredible, and you just feel alive. So you wake up, you'll get dressed in your tent, and brush your teeth, whatever you need to do, and then you go have breakfast, and then you go back to your tent, you get your water situated, get your snacks together, pack up your personal bag, and then you set off. My tidbit with you, bring they sell these little sticks. They look like pixie sticks, and they're filled with honey. Bring those. Honey keeps you warm. Every 30 minutes or so, you take one of the sticks, or you take a half a stick and suck down the honey. It warms you from within. It feels like you're having a nice warm cup of tea. Tell us about the importance of the guides. It seems like, you know, they're the unsung hero. They're taking up all your stuff. They're cooking your food. They're setting up the tents. They're you know, shutting down the tents. They know where they're going. They're like Superman almost. They are superheroes. The guides eat with you. They are climbing with you. They're basically holding your hand the entire way. The porters, you won't have a whole lot of interaction. It makes you really appreciate everything that you have. When you see porters are going to be very poorly dressed. They're obviously don't make very much money at all. Um, this is their only way of life. There's only a few companies that actually pay their quarters a fair wage. 
you need to do a lot of research on how the porters are paid and treated and the porters won't speak any English at all but yet your health your safety your seven days depends on those guides and those porters amazing yeah that's similar to like when you're on a dive boat in another country and you see how hard the staff works and they're all pretty much local and you know, they're, they're lifting your heavy dive gear. They're getting in the water. They're fixing things. What route did you take? The Machame. Machame? Okay, is that the Coca-Cola route? The very famous uh, one? Oh, no. Okay. No. Where you may do the Lamosho one. Yeah. No, the Machame route is the most difficult route. Oh, I see. Wow. Yeah, that's why I was a little pissed at her when I was reading about it on the plane ride over. I'm, like, stopping off in Amsterdam. I'm like, uh... I don't know if she actually read this paperwork, and I don't know if it's too late to change our route because <laughs> neither one of us are hikers, and you can tell because we are getting up there and we're taking the tags off of our brand new clothes that we bought and the brand new gear that we bought for this trip because we're not hikers. We don't have hiking boots. We pass hikers, and they're, you can tell their pants have seen the outdoors, and they have a like they look worn and comfy and I'm like oh don't get my pants dirty (laughs) (laughs) you're you're posers (laughs) we were that's what we felt like we felt like total posers like we should have no business on this mountain you're a veteran now when it comes to mastering the mountain that's uh that's incredible and I really hope that we can have success in doing the same. I think we're taking an eight-day route to get us up there. So we're trying to be uh, good about it, not rushing and, and take our time. And so we have the highest probability of success. There's not a single doubt in my mind that you would never not make it. I appreciate your positivity because I believe I can do it too. I'm probably not going to like the idea of sleeping in a tent and being cold. I'm always cold, but uh, uh, we'll see. I mean, I did Fuji and that was fun. It was, you know, while you're doing it, you're like, why am I doing this? You know, this is crazy. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. You know, this is nuts, but it was incredible at the same time. We have amazing stories to tell and one day I'll turn that into a blog post. There's just so much to say and but yeah. there's a Japanese saying that a wise man climbs Fuji once, a fool does it twice. So mm-hmm. is that the same for Kilimanjaro? <laughs> like, <laughs> does this make me a fool? Because does that include all mountains going forward? <laughs> no, no, no. I would do it again in a heartbeat. You would. Uh, well, we shall see. Stay tuned. So you can now check on uh, my Facebook page, Embolden Adventures, and uh, the yes. blog, and, and kind of follow along and see if this is uh, something I'm going to do. Oh, my God. <laughs> Thank you, thank you, thank you. This is awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Let me know what else we can do. Will do. Thanks, Kim. Have a good day. Bye. Bye.